the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to hear a classic interview with Dr. Paul Brownback. His uh, book is titled Licensing Selfishness. And we'll also talk with Anastasia Bowden. She's Pacific Legal Foundation senior attorney. She's also the co-host of the Pacific Legal Foundation's podcast, Dist. We're going to talk about what court packing is and what it isn't. In fact, we have a, a version of their podcast on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page if you'd like to see their uh, five-minute explanation featuring Anastasia. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, after a 52-48 majority vote, the Senate confirmed Amy Coney Barrett as Associate Justice to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Judge Barrett officially became Justice Barrett following a private ceremony in the Supreme Court's East Conference Room Tuesday morning. Chief Justice John Roberts administered the judicial oath to her, officially making her the court's 103rd Associate Justice. Well, upon administration of that oath, she will be able to begin to participate in the work of the court. That's what the Supreme Court said in a press release prior to the ceremony, adding that a formal investiture ceremony will take place at a special sitting of the court in the courtroom at a later date. Well, the ceremony took place at 10 a.m. with all of the justices participating, although Justice Stephen Breyer attended virtually, according to the court public information officer. Um, Kennedy was in attendance, as were the wives of Justice Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh. Well, the new justice was sworn in on a family Bible that her husband, Jesse Barrett, held. Their children were not parent, uh, present. rather. Well, Barrett's confirmation process quickly took place following her nomination. After the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing and voted on Thursday to advance her nomination, to the Senate floor. Senate Republicans uh, quickly voted Sunday to limit debate on the matter before holding a confirmation vote Monday evening. Well, following a 52-48 vote, Barrett then went before Justice Clarence Thomas to take her constitutional oath at a White House ceremony. She will now be able to sit with the other eight justices to rule on cases that include several high-profile issues. Republicans have requested that the Supreme Court speedily decide a case involving changes to Pennsylvania's election law after the court had previously left in place a lower court decision that extended the deadline for ballots to be received for the November election. One week after the election, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in a case where the fate of the Affordable Care Act could be decided as well. Democrats accuse the Republicans of rushing Barrett through her confirmation process so that she could rule against the Affordable Care Act as she had previously criticized the 2012 decision of one of the the um, justices uh, that upheld it. Well, she noted during her confirmation hearing that the issues involved in the current case are different from the 2012 case and that she hasn't indicated which way she might lean in this new matter. Well, Amy uh, Coney Barrett, Associate Justice, gave some remarks uh, at her swearing-in ceremony, and I wanted to share those remarks with you. Here's Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you all for being here tonight. And thank you, President Trump, 
for selecting me to serve as an Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. It's a privilege to be asked to serve my country in this office, and I stand here tonight truly honored and humbled. Thanks also to the Senate for giving its consent to my appointment. I am grateful for the confidence you have expressed in me, and I pledge to you and to the American people that I will discharge my duties to the very best of my ability. This was a rigorous confirmation process, and I thank all of you, especially Leader McConnell and Chairman Graham, for helping me to navigate it. My heartfelt thanks go to the members of the White House staff and Department of Justice who worked tirelessly to support me through this process. Your stamina is remarkable, and I have been the beneficiary of it. Jesse and I are also so grateful to the many people have supported, who have supported our family over these last several weeks. Through ways both tangible and intangible, you have made this day possible. Jesse and I have been truly awestruck by your generosity. I have spent a good amount of time over the last month at the Senate, both in meetings with individual senators and in days of hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee. The confirmation process has made ever clearer to me one of the fundamental differences between the federal judiciary and the United States Senate. And perhaps the most acute is the role of policy preferences. It is the job of a senator to pursue her policy preferences. In fact, it would be a dereliction of duty for her to put policy goals aside. By contrast, it is the job of a judge to resist her policy preferences. It would be a dereliction of duty for her to give in to them. Federal judges don't stand for election. Thus, they have no basis for claiming that their preferences reflect those of the people. This separation of duty from political preference is what makes the judiciary distinct among the three branches of government. A judge declares independence not only from Congress and the President, but also from the private beliefs that might otherwise move her. The judicial oath captures the essence of the judicial duty the rule of law must always control. My fellow Americans, even though we judges don't face elections, we still work for you. It is your Constitution that establishes the rule of law and the judicial independence that is so central to it. The oath that I have solemnly taken tonight means at its core that I will do my job without any fear or favor, and that I will do so independently of both the political branches and of my own preferences. I love the Constitution and the democratic republic that it establishes, and I will devote myself to preserving it. Thank you. Well, Governor Kate Brown today extended her declaration of a state of emergency regarding COVID-19 for an additional 60 days. That's until January 2nd, 2021. So our um, confinement continues. 
The declaration is the legal underpinning for the governor's COVID-19 executive orders and the Oregon Health Authority's health and safety guidance. She issued a statement, and this is what the governor said. As early as January of this year, the Oregon Health Authority began its COVID-19 preparedness efforts as cases spread overseas. Since then, more than 600 Oregonians and over 200,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. And last week, we set a daily record with 550 new cases. Extending the COVID-19 state of emergency is not something I do lightly, the governor said, but we know all too well that not taking action would mean an even greater loss of life. The second wave of COVID-19 has arrived in the United States, and this time it is hitting all of our communities. My goal, the governor went on to say, is to keep Oregon on track to open more schools for in-person instruction for our students and to continue to reopen and keep open our businesses, communities, and economies. Oregon is not an island. Without safety precautions in place, we could quickly see our case count spike as well. We must continue to work together and follow the simple steps that have kept us safe throughout this pandemic, washing our hands, wearing face coverings, uh, watching our physical distance, staying home when sick, and avoiding social get-togethers, especially indoors. The state of emergency declaration is the legal underpinning for the executive orders the governor has issued to keep Oregonians healthy and safe throughout this crisis, including her orders on reopening Oregon while maintaining essential health and safety protections, as well as orders around child care, schools, higher education operations. Extending the state of emergency declaration allows those orders to stay in effect. The governor reviews and reevaluates each of her emergency orders every 60 days to determine whether those orders should be continued, modified or rescinded. And uh, Multnomah County, as you probably know, not the only county in Oregon, is still in phase one. So our um, quarantine will continue. um, And, you know, what phase you happen to be in or might remain in will be determined by the numbers. But the governor has now extended that COVID-19 state of emergency. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up on our next segment, we'll hear from Dr. Paul Brownback. Licensing Selfishness is the title of his book. Well, as mentioned earlier, the Senate confirmed Amy Coney Barrett, Associate Justice to the U.S. Supreme Court, with a 52-48 vote. All 45 Democrats and two independents who caucus with the Democrats opposed her confirmation. Senator John Kennedy lauded her uh, Supreme Court confirmation as a victory for our founders, Democrat senators uh, voted to oppose Justice Barrett in a very dramatic fashion on the floor. Uh, candidate Biden raised the idea of rotating Supreme Court justices, saying there is some literature among constitutional scholars. First, I've heard of it, but it's an interesting concept. And squad members uh, call for the expanding of the bench. Court packing. We'll talk more about that in the five o'clock hour. Leslie Marshall says that Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation is proof that we need a Biden victory in 2020. We'll see if the American people agree, although more than 50 plus million ballots have already been cast. Well, with barely more than a week to go before the November election, President Trump has been taking Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden to task for his mixed record on cutting Medicare and Social Security. At one of two campaign rallies in Florida last Friday, he accused his Democratic rival of lying at the previous night's presidential debate when asked if he wanted to cut Medicare and Social Security. For years, Joe Biden fought to cut your Social Security. He wanted to cut it. He wanted to knock it out and Medicare, which Joe has now falsely denied. The way he denied it, Trump told the crowd in the villages, 
during one of those events was rather dramatic. Meanwhile, Laura Ingram says that COVID is Biden's true running mate as Democrats push the virus panic button and Biden pushes back on Trump's attacks in Pennsylvania, saying, I'm not eliminating fracking. Newt Gingrich says if Biden's corruption were exposed, a Trump landslide would be possible. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Well, police in Philadelphia clashed with protesters late Monday night, just hours after a black man armed with a knife was shot and killed by two officers in the western part of the city, according to reports. Philadelphia Police Sergeant Eric Grip said the shooting occurred at about 4 p.m. after officers responded to a call about a man with a weapon. He said the officers were immediately met with a male who was carrying a knife. Grip said the man appeared to disregard orders to drop the knife. A video emerged that purported to show the moments before the shooting. The man's mother could reportedly be seen chasing after her son and asking police not to open fire. The video showed the man, identified in reports as Walter Wallace Jr., walking toward the officers prior to the shooting. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that police said the officer drove the man to a nearby hospital after the incident. The police department and city's district attorney vowed to look into the shooting. The incident sparked anger in the community. Protesters took to the streets and called the shooting another example of police officers killing a black man. The Inquirer reported that these protesters marched to a city police station where officers lined up behind metal barricades. The report said that some protesters were seen throwing various objects and several officers were injured after being hit. At least one officer's vehicle was set on fire. Tim Murtaugh calls out CNN's Chris Cuomo for his um, Q-tip comedy act with his brother during a fiery spat on coronavirus. And Tucker Carlson says Tony Boblinski is about to tell us what he knows about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. Well, the Navy has issued a safety stand down for non-deployed aircraft and U.S. Marshals rescue 45 missing children as part of Operation Autumn Hope. 50 Cent Soundnet now says expletive Donald Trump one week after expressing support for the president because it's very tough to hold that position as an African-American during this political season. Speaker Pelosi remains optimistic about a COVID-19 relief package before Election Day. That's about seven days from now. And a judge has set the first hearing in U.S. Google antitrust lawsuit. Major League Baseball's debt stands at $8.3 billion after the shortened 2020 season during the coronavirus pandemic. Well, the Supreme Court has rejected late ballots in the battleground state of Wisconsin, and Trump asks the justices to block the North Carolina mail-in ballot extension as well. Well, COVID aid is on hold until after the election as the Senate leaves Washington. That after Nancy Pelosi saying she was optimistic. Well, CNN and MSNBC have skipped the historic Senate vote confirming Justice Barrett. Apparently they had better things to do. And the media excused Joe Biden's mix-up. He was talking about George Lopez when he referred to George when he was referring to Donald. Defund NPR. Well, a man, uh, a man's plot to kill Joe Biden uh, was reported, but NPR omitted the story that he was a Bernie bro with books on Islam, leaving open the idea that this was another example of the president's followers. Democrats who endeavor to pack the Supreme Court say Republicans will regret the Barrett confirmation. And in a spin, Biden floats rotating the SCOTUS justices if he's elected. Awkward, Biden remains unmentioned in Barack Obama's retelling of the health care bill's passage. And Biden drew the bulk of his fundraising support from the wealthiest zip codes. Not sure how that resonates with some on the left. And another rapper has endorsed Donald Trump while ripping Biden's tax plan. A Hunter Biden sought to avoid registering as a foreign agent in his Chinese business ventures, according to the Daily Caller. And Deja Vu, 
Polls in battleground states are nearly identical to 2016. For the record, The Federalist points out that Biden cannot claim to fight for our nation's soul while supporting unborn genocide. And they say that when Kamala Harris could have pushed to investigate public shootings, she didn't. Again, from The Federalist. Well, Tropical Storm Zeta becomes a hurricane, a hurricane rather, as it takes aim at already hard-hit Louisiana. And a California utility says its equipment may have sparked California's blaze. It's forcing the largest evacuations in that state's history. And a fatal police shooting of a knife-wielding black man has prompted heated protests in West Philly. Some are suggesting this might be what we'll see following the election. And a man who brought firearms used in the San Bernardino terrorist attack has been charged with 20 years. Well, cases are skyrocketing of the latest COVID-19, but deaths are flat so far, according to Time magazine. And hospitalized patients are already taking, uh, who have already been taking aspirin daily, were 47% less likely to die of coronavirus. Under the heading of national security in western Arizona, over 100 miles of new border wall is getting results. And Germany favors the U.S. partnership to thwart Russia and China's global supremacy quest. Well, the U.S. Uh, threatens to destroy Iranian missiles that have been shipped to Venezuela. And colleges hid more than $6.5 billion in foreign funding. Stranger than fiction, Elton John gets his own Barbie doll. Note I didn't say Ken doll. KFC's fried chicken-scented fire log is back. And social media is erupting over a woman who focuses on getting her dad to vote for Biden while he's literally dying. Billionaire Bill Gross allegedly blared the Gilligan's Island theme song on a loop to annoy his neighbors during a dispute over a sculpture. Well, other notables, Fox announcers who were um, caught on a live mic bashing a military flyover said they were simply mimicking the crew. And NASA discovers more water on the moon than previously thought. And Japan pledges to be, well, carbon neutral by 2050. We'll see how they do. Well, upon confirmation, Democrats openly talked of packing the court. Clearly their intent, though, Biden is still not feeling safe to admit it. AOC immediately tweeted, expand the court. Democratic Senator Ed Markey also said we must expand the Supreme Court. Ilhan Omar says, remember that Republicans have lost six of the last seven popular votes, but have appointed six of the nine last justices. By expanding the court, we fix this broken system and have the court better represent the values of the American people. Of course, the court's job is not to reflect the values of the American people, but to interpret the Constitution, which can be amended to better reflect the values of the American people if members of Congress choose to do so. Nancy Pelosi also floated the idea on MSNBC, and polling shows the majority of the public wanted Barrett confirmed. Andrew McCarthy points out that Democrats do not appear to have the votes they would need to eliminate the filibuster, which is what it would take to expand the court and pack it with progressive activist judges or justices. Yet the election uh, with election day just a week away in control of both the executive and legislative branches hanging in the balance. Democrats cannot afford to depress the turnout of hard left voters, particularly the young who are notoriously unreliable in terms of converting their Democratic Party sympathies into actual votes. This might be the year that is the exception. We won't know that until Election Day and the days following. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with, uh, share a classic interview with uh, Dr. Paul Brownback, Licensing Selfishness. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Next, we're going to review a book titled Licensing Selfishness. 
the secular and evangelical ideology destroying America. It's a fascinating book because it draws our attention to a human and natural trait that, if licensed, leads us in a direction that ultimately will lead not only to personal but national destruction. My guest is Paul Brownback. He is a Ph.D. He graduated from West Point, has a Master of Divinity degree from Talbert Theological Seminary, a Master of Human Relations from University of Oklahoma, and a Ph.D. from New York University. He has served as a pastor, a counselor, a college president. He's published two books, The Danger of Self-Love, which examines the contemporary self-esteem movement from a biblical perspective, and Counterattack. He writes a weekly article on moral, social, and political issues for his blog, Hope that's real.com. And today he joins us to talk about his latest book, Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Dr. Brownback, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Georgine. It's a real privilege. You make the point that the uh, human inclination towards selfishness is not a news story. It begins really right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. But when you license selfishness, when you uh, elevate it to a virtue, uh, the damage it can cause, um, well, we're really seeing some of that even today. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean uh, with the, uh, the the phrase licensing selfishness? Well, Georgina, I believe that uh, the secular culture as well as evangelicals have adopted a concept that really gives us permission to live selfishly. It's saying that it's okay to uh, live any way we want to live. It's okay to make choices that benefit uh, ourselves even at the expense of other people. As you pointed out, uh, human beings have uh, that inclination naturally, and, uh, and when we license it, when we say it's okay, then we really do a lot of damage. You write that the current proliferation of selfishness doesn't merely result from normal uh, cultural erosion. It is licensed by an ideology of selfishness and interconnected ideology, psychology and theology that unleashes selfishness in both secular society and the evangelical church. Selfishness comprises a powerful human inclination without any encouragement. An ideology that protects and even promotes selfishness has put it on steroids, creating societal chaos. And you give uh, several examples of what this selfishness looks like. It's not just elevating one's own uh, personal interests, but it's also um, having an impact on the value of others, the, the value of others who may hold a different point of view, who may um, want to do things differently. They are devalued to the point where my selfish interests uh, makes them a, a non-entity, essentially. You know, the, the concept that, that I believe is so destructive, one that is accepted by secular society and one that's accepted by evangelicals, and uh, surprising to many of your listeners, I'm sure, but the concept is that of unconditional love and acceptance. And that has become the hallmark of, of our secular society. Actually, the, the whole aspect of unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, is the, the ultimate moral principle that guides our society. Uh, accepting is always right. Not accepting is always wrong, and so we see this playing out in uh, oh abortion. You can you mm -hmm. can uh, you know, kill your child, and uh, and uh, and I accept you. Or uh, you can uh, be a transgender, and a transgender male uh, has to be accepted unconditionally. Therefore, 
he must be accepted uh, participating in women's sports. And so you have a, a girl who has uh, worked her heart out to excel in a sport and then have this biological male come along and, and steal her championship from her and all in the name of unconditional acceptance. We must accept this biological male unconditionally, which means that we must allow him to participate. We, we see this unconditional acceptance at work in many aspects of our secular society and also in evangelical society. And it's, it's extremely destructive, as you pointed out, when we, we when we talk about unconditional acceptance, that sounds innocent enough. Well, I accept you. I love you unconditionally. However, when we say that, in essence, we're telling that person, uh, you can live any way you want to without consequences. I accept you just the same regardless of how you live, which means that you accept them even if they hurt other people. And therefore, when you say, I accept you unconditionally, you're saying, you're the only person that really matters. The people that you hurt really don't matter. And, and therefore, it's a very destructive concept, and it's wrecking havoc both in secular society and uh, in evangelical society. I suppose it's not surprising that secular society would move, um, would co-op, in fact, concepts that they believe reflect a Christian worldview and move in a direction that uh, again, elevates selfishness to uh, a virtue. But within the evangelical church, I suppose that is more surprising to me, given the fruit of the Spirit and what the scriptures teach. Is there a, a belief that unconditional love and acceptance is another way of expressing the concept of grace? And is that what God's accepting and uh, receiving us unto himself, this holy God that we serve, is that what uh, his grace is? Well, I believe that that is how this concept actually made its way into evangelical mindset. Uh, it's not, this concept, unconditional love and acceptance, not found in Scripture. The, the term is not found in Scripture, nor is the concept. Uh, it, it probably made its way into the evangelical world, first of all, through, through the Jesus people. And, and Jesus people did a lot of good things. They brought a lot of vitality, a lot of evangelical zeal to, to the evangelical church, but they also dragged along with them uh, the, uh, the ideologies of the hippie movement, and this was one of the, one of the ideologies, and so uh, they, they were responsible, I think, at least to some extent, in introducing it to the evangelical church, and, and baby boomers, likewise, they, they uh, picked up this concept in, in schools and entertainment industry, uh, from the uh, mainstream media, and, and therefore they uh, <clears throat> brought it into the evangelical uh, uh, community. But the major conduit, I believe, was uh, uh, evangelical psychology. Back in the 70s and 80s, we find the advent of a, a strong... Uh, presence of evangelical psychology. And back in that day, uh, this concept of unconditional love and acceptance was a major uh, force within secular psychology, and that's where they got their training in, in, in this perspective. And so uh, as evangelicals began to uh, embrace psychology, they 
they picked it up from there. But but as you mentioned, <clears throat> and one major reason why we felt at home with the concept of unconditional love and acceptance is that it, it seemed to reflect grace. I, I mean, grace is God accepting us apart from works. And so at least from a casual perspective, uh, well, that would seem to say, well, he accepts us unconditionally. And that's not accurate. Uh, there are conditions to grace. Grace is, is not unconditional. For example, saving saving grace, uh, the, the condition is faith. If we didn't have a condition, everybody would be saved. But Scripture says, no, you receive God's grace when you you uh, exercise saving faith. So, so grace is a conditional term. But uh, again, a more casual understanding of grace uh, gives people the impression, oh, grace and unconditional acceptance seem to be the same thing. And I, I believe even evangelicals have equated the two, and uh, that's what's uh, prompted us to buy into this error. Now, we need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Dr. Paul Brownback, his latest book, Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology. He has a fascinating history of how it made its way into uh, the church as well as into the broader secular society and the impact on our culture, on entertainment, and on our national life. We'll continue that conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Paul Brownback. He's the author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America, a fascinating a book that gives a bit of history and context to understanding this notion. Now, is this uh, the disagreement between Calvinism and Arminian uh, point of view uh, from a theological point of view? Is it a theological question uh, or is it a, a question of culture influencing theology in general within the evangelical church? Well, it really doesn't get into the uh, Arminian Calvinist issue. It, it uh, actually has been... Uh, adopted by uh, people with both of those perspectives, and mm-hmm. it doesn't really get into that per se. It's it's more of an issue of uh, Christian living. And uh, <clears throat> you, you see, if, if we believe that a person is accepted unconditionally, that takes us to some other beliefs that we bought into. One of them is the idea that we don't have to perform to please God or be accepted by Him. And that's that's a, a common cliche among evangelicals today. Well, you non-performance-based Christianity, and they they talk about well, we don't want to be dragged back into performance-based Christianity. And uh, well, non-performance-based Christianity is an outgrowth of uncondi- unconditional acceptance. If if we accept somebody unconditionally, that means that, that they don't have to live a certain way. They don't have to perform. For our acceptance, and so likewise, if if God accepts them unconditionally, that means that uh, that they don't have to perform to please God. It doesn't matter how they live; God is just as pleased with them. There's a cliche today: there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and nothing you can do to make God love you less. And so. So your lifestyle has nothing to do with God's attitude toward you. you. 
another way uh, that that is expressed today is that when God uh, looks on you, he doesn't see uh, your performance. He, or some people say, well, he doesn't see your dirt. He, he doesn't see your sinfulness. He just sees the righteousness of Christ. And, and you know, Georgine, when you look at Scripture, you just, you just see virtually hundreds of passages that say that this is not the case. For example, you take the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Here the church just gets kicked off. We have the Pentecost. We have all kind of people becoming coming to the Lord and, and so forth. And then we have Ananias and Sapphira coming along. And, and seeming from Scripture, these are two believers. And, uh, and they uh, perform a very generous act. They sell a property and give a substantial portion of it to the church. And uh, I imagine in today's world, the church leaders would be very happy with that. The problem is that they lied about it. They said they gave the total amount to the church when they only gave part, and God struck them dead. Well, you say that doesn't really reflect unconditional love and acceptance. Uh, God drowning most of the population of the world in the flood certainly doesn't reflect unconditional love and acceptance. God's uh, destruction of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is another uh, expression that God does not love and accept unconditionally. And and someone might say, well, yeah, but that's Old Testament stuff. How about the New Testament? And well, we, we talked about Ananias and Sapphira, but we also have the situation of the uh, church in Corinth that uh, uh, during the communion service, rather than being sensitive toward people who have less. There were some people in the, the church that, that brought a, a really big box lunch and, and stuffed themselves while others looked on hungrily. And God said, or Paul said in the 1 Corinthians 11.30, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, or many, uh, many die. And, and God apparently Look, some of these people dead for for this act of selfishness. Or we find the tribulation ahead, and and we we find uh, Book of Revelation talking about hundred pound hailstones falling on people, and 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 that certainly does not reflect unconditional acceptance. And and then there's the issue of an eternal hell, which which also uh, indicates that God does not accept those people unconditionally. So many, many portions of Scripture, many passages of Scripture shows that this is not biblical, and yet it has been embraced by contemporary evangelicals. And and again, it's a dangerous concept because really it licenses selfishness. One of the uh, results of this is that... uh, there's there's very little preaching on sin anymore. And the reason mm-hmm. is that doesn't fit into the contemporary evangelical template. You write about um, the remedy for licensed selfishness, and that is agape love. That's not something politics can produce. It's not something that entertainment culture can produce. This is the, the function of the church. Can you talk a bit about how we um, resist this licensed selfishness that is so prevalent in the secular community as well as within the church? 
Well, first of all, we need to get back to the understanding and recognizing the authority of God. When you think about unconditional acceptance, uh, if, if we believe that God accepts us unconditionally, that really undermines the authority of God. That means uh, God does not exercise his authority toward us. We can live any way we want to. We can, we can uh, neglect God's commands. Uh, we can neglect the teachings of Scripture, and God's just as happy with us uh, while we do that. So it undermines God's authority. We need to get back to where we recognize that, that God is a God of authority. He tells us how to live, and we need to be obedient to that. And the consequences when we're not. We lose fellowship. Uh, we lose reward. We lose his blessing. In fact, Scripture says he doesn't even listen to our prayers. Uh, we need to get back to the authority of Scripture. Uh, as I've already mentioned, uh, this concept just ignores many, many passages of Scripture. Uh, contemporary evangelicals tend to per- uh, cherry-pick their Scriptures that they, uh, that they uh, teach and preach on, and they ignore so many others that don't fit into this template of unconditional acceptance. And then we need to, to get back to where we, uh, we exercise the disciplines necessary to live a mm-hmm. godly life. Unconditional acceptance has really weakened us. We, if it's, it's like a, a, a football player going out there, but not, not doing any exercises. And, 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 and because of that, we've become weak and we need to regain the, the, uh, spiritual muscle to uh, fight in the culture war. Well, we certainly are in a culture war, and you write about that in the book, Licensing Selfishness. In the last chapter, you include a plan that would enable evangelicals to win the culture war. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that plan, how we can influence the culture around us in a way that will restore what's been lost? Well, I sure can. And this, for me, is a is a very significant and, and a frustrating issue in a way. Uh, I, I, I saw a uh, television special or a YouTube special last night on, uh, on America, and uh, in it, they made the point that the church is, is the greatest threat to the left in this country, that, that we have the power to, to uh, overcome the, the forces of the left in this country and restore righteousness and decency and so forth. Why aren't we? What, what is the reason why, why we are not uh, exercising the power that God has given us? And uh, I list several factors. Uh, one of them is corporate prayer. The Apostle Paul in First Timothy chapter 2 says that, uh, that uh, corporate prayer uh, is one of the, the major uh, factors that we need to give attention to in the church. He, he says there, first of all, that prayer needs to be made, talking about prayer within the church. Most church services we go to today have very little prayer. We have people praying individually, but in terms of church prayer, it is practically, practically non-existent. But a major factor is unity. Uh, evangelicals today do not have a unified approach to fighting the culture war. We, we are splintered. We, we uh, 
do the, our major fighting through parachurch organizations, and they do a great job. I think about American Family Association, American Research Council, and others mm-hmm. doing a great job in, in terms of as, as much as they can do as, as individual organizations, but, but without unity, without a unified approach, uh, uh, there is a very limited amount to what we could accomplish. If the evangelical church, and I'm not suggesting that we all meet in the same building or anything, but but I I am suggesting that if we had something like a a, a unifying organization like like a uh, uh, social action center that that under which all evangelicals would would come together and join in the culture war, uh, we could have a great influence. But we don't have that kind of coordinated effort and and because of that uh, uh the uh, the secular world just defeats us at almost every turn for example uh right now a major problem is social media and mm-hmm. we see this in the news almost every day they so social media uh blocking uh, conservative and christian messages and uh well, it, 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 there there are probably about 30 million evangelical Christians in the country today. But we could have our own social media, and uh, and it could be as big as Facebook. It could be as big as Twitter, and it, it wouldn't have to be necessarily labeled as Christian. It could be um, just the good social media, but it could be controlled by Christians and. Uh, and because it's not labeled Christian, many, many unsaved people, many people in the secular world could join in and it could be a dominant force as, as influential as Facebook and as Twitter. But because of our lack of unity, we can't do that. And, uh, and therefore we are victimized by, uh, by these forces. Well, there's so Think much another, more. Uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say there's so much more in your book that we won't have time to to get into. Um, But again, the title is Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Now, where can our listeners acquire a copy of the book and follow um, the social media, your blog that you uh, write on on a regular basis? Uh, You can uh, can get the book almost at every outlet, Amazon or uh, Nook or uh, it's in uh, both print form and it's in the electronic form, ebook form. So uh, it's, it's available almost, almost anywhere. Uh, and my blog, the uh, actually I've, I've changed the name of my blog. It's truthforyou.com. T r u t h f o r and the letter u. dot com. And uh, I would uh, love to have people uh, tune into my uh, my blog, and and I try to to uh, write to that every week. Well, uh, the book is absolutely fascinating, and I'm sorry we don't have more time to go in depth because there's a lot of depth in the book that we didn't get to. But I thank you for taking the time to uh, join us here today. And again, I would encourage our listeners to read Licensing Selfishness, The Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Dr. Brownback, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Georgine. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Well, with Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett officially sworn in, calls for court packing are renewed. But my next guest points out we use the phrase quite often, but what is it? What is court packing. Well, Pacific Legal Foundation's senior attorney and co-host of Pacific Legal Foundation's legal podcast, DIST, Anastasia Bowden says, trust me, it's not what you think it is. We want to try to understand what is it it, that is being threatened and um, is it something we ought to consider and why has it been rejected in the past? Well, again, Anastasia is a Pacific Legal Foundation senior attorney and co-host of their podcast, DIST. Anastasia, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, there has been quite a um, uh, quite a bit of hysteria following the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett and the threat of court packing has been raised from various quarters. Let's begin by talking about the history of court packing, which I suppose we could also refer to as uh, unpacking when you look, as you did in your podcast, over this history of the court, the numbers and the reasons for increasing or decreasing the number of associate justices. Yeah, well, I think it's important to first define court packing, as you said, because right now we hear the term thrown around to basically uh, be used as an aspersion whenever uh, a president does something that the other party doesn't like. So anytime they simply, it, it seems as if anytime a party nominates a justice that the other side doesn't like, they accuse them of court packing. And that's not what court packing is. Court packing is adding seats to the bench for the purpose of changing the ideological composition of the bench. So it's not the normal confirmation process. That's, that's not dangerous. That's just how the Constitution envisions it. What's dangerous is when we add seats to the bench because we are making the bench now a purely political thing um, rather than something else. Uh, and so throughout history, it has happened a few times. Um, it's actually more often than not been core unpacking. That is, there have been uh, outgoing presidents who uh, there have been some vacancies on the court and that president has reduced the number of seats so that the incoming president would not be able to put on the Supreme Court justices that the incoming president wanted. Um, but for the most part, you know, the, for the last several years, uh, the number of justices has stayed the same um, because we now recognize that the dangerousness of court packing, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself said that she thought it was a bad idea when FDR introduced the idea of court packing, and that nine seems like a very good number um, because it's universally recognized now that you really are politicizing the court when you make such a proposal. I think the bottom line is the notion of politicizing the court. It's not new to this generation. We've seen this in the past, but it has been uh, rejected in the past. You mentioned FDR. The Democrats at that time rejected uh, packing the court, which, again, means ideologically shifting the court in one direction or another for political purposes. Right. And I think the interesting thing about the FDR proposal is, you know, it's pretty much taught in history books. I certainly grew up learning about the, quote, switch in time that saved nine. You know, we're all told that one of the justices switched his vote in a really important Supreme Court case because he wanted to save off the court packing plan. And it was understood that if the justices sort of started fighting more with FDR that, you know, the plan wouldn't pass. And now it's, it's really interesting uh, because we have the papers that have been released from the justices, and we now know that that, quote, switch in time was not a switch in time. In fact, that justice had decided to rule that way before FDR's court passing plan was even introduced. Um, so it wasn't a switch in time. But because there was this court packing plan out there, 
the public at the time just assumed that it was a switch and that it was a response to the court packing plan. And you can see how that really does damage to uh, the perception of the judiciary. Now we're just all assuming, we're seeing the court through the lens, through that political lens, and we're assuming that they're trading votes and that they're voting not according to the Constitution, not according to um, judicial philosophy or understanding of their proper role, but solely as a matter of politics. And, uh, and I think that, that historical anecdote proves the point because everyone assumes switching time was a switch, and in fact it wasn't, and that's all because of the fact of court passing. Um, I, I don't think we should want that for our court. Well, there are three co-equal branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. The judiciary was supposed to be independent. It was not supposed to be ideological or political. And yet it seems to me the the, um, legislative branch, at least some part of it, would like very much for it to be ideological bent, uh, bent one way or the other for the sake of accomplishing what the legislative branch either is unwilling or unable to do in its unique sphere of influence. What are the dangers of politicizing uh, the judiciary? Yeah, I think judiciary into the very thing it was not supposed to be. It's mm-hmm. not supposed to be a rubber stamp for the legislature. Um, it's supposed to be an independent group that will act as a check on the legislature. It's supposed to, when, when the political process fails us, when the majority votes to trample the minority's rights, the judiciary is supposed to be there to say, no, 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 we have to look to the Constitution. Politics, it doesn't matter that the majority wants it this way. The Constitution does not permit it. But if the judiciary is just there to be a rubber stamp, it's just there to go along with whatever the legislature says, you know, the, the ruling party says, there is no check on the legislature. And so that's a really dangerous proposition because it's uh, effectively removing one of the checks on uh, the legislative branch's power. Well, and it seems that the legislative uh, legislative branch is ceding power to the judiciary, which one would assume they wouldn't want to uh, want to do. We tend to look at the confirmation process of Robert Bork as the point at which the politicization of the Supreme Court began. But as you pointed out, this really predates that very contentious uh, court hearing that resulted in him not uh, sitting on the, the court. It really historically goes back much sooner than that. Yeah, that's right. There's been some really interesting uh, times throughout history, you know, going as far back as the year uh, 1800 with Jefferson and Adams uh, goofing it out and uh, Adams trying, signing all of these judges onto the lower courts the last minute and then he reduces the size of the Supreme Court to try to take away power from Jefferson. And so it's not it's not a modern phenomenon. But I think that historically it's something that's been universally recognized as and it's really interesting that it's you know resurgence now, um, and I think it needs to be talked about that, that this is a dangerous thing, and and what you end up getting is like you said a shirking of responsibility. You get the legislature sort of ceding any responsibility to the Supreme Court, then you get the Supreme Court who might say, well, we're just deferring to the legislature. So you get this sort of double deference situation where everybody's shifting blame to the other branch, nobody's really checking the other, and that's a really um, that's a really bad thing if you care about our system of government, limited uh, government power and individual rights. One member of the Senate said that uh, the constructionist view is just another uh, phrase used to um, express or to cover up for discrimination, that it's racist and sexist and so on. 
Um, And I thought it interesting that the legislative branch has the power to amend the Constitution. So if they disagree with the the construction of the Constitution, there is a mechanism in place for them and them alone to uh, work to amend it. Your thoughts on um, interpreting the Constitution as it was written and intended and whether or not that is, in fact, um, a code word for discrimination? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, it's silly to say that, that originalism is racist because it is practiced by a wide variety of people from differing backgrounds, women and men, um, you know, people of all sorts of different heritages and racial uh, backgrounds. So I, I think that's just ridiculous. And it's also, you know, people defend decisions like Brown v. Board of Education based on originalism grounds. We've seen some of the biggest civil rights victories for Americans come from originalist interpretations of the Constitution. So I think that's just a very unfair characterization. Um, But I would also say that certainly originalists don't say that, yeah, the Constitution can't change at all. First of all, you know, although the Constitution enshrines um, things like free speech, it doesn't say that as technology evolves, uh, you know, we go from uh, quill to typewriter to internet, we wouldn't say, well, the, the First Amendment doesn't protect the internet because the internet didn't exist at the time of the founding. So there's just a little bit of a misunderstanding about what originalism is. It doesn't lock the world in any one way or say that, you know, protections that existed then cannot be applied in the modern world. But anyway, if you think that those concepts are not being properly applied in the modern world, just as you said, the Constitution can be amended. And so the theory is that if you're committed to a written Constitution, then we have to actually be committed to a written Constitution because that's the only effective way to check legislators' power. And if you don't like what's written, change it. It's fine to change it. What's not fine is to allow a group of nine people on the bench to impose their own views and to change it at their own whim um, because that's that's just going to result in a, a, a bunch of decisions that ultimately people don't like and I think ultimately uh, uh, are going to subvert individual liberty. Well, Anastasia, thank you so much for talking with us. I've also posted your uh, podcast, Dist, on this subject on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page so our listeners can uh, watch. Very well done and get a, a fuller historic picture of what's happened in the past. Thank you so much. Thank you. Anastasia Bowden with Pacific Legal Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the left fumed over the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett as expected. The media coverage was about as wacky as you might have imagined. The celebrity reaction, well, you can guess. Cosmopolitan says there is nothing supreme about the highest court now. Democratic Senator Ed Markey says originalism is racist. Originalism is sexist. Originalism is homophobic. Originalism is just a fancy word for discrimination. Apparently, he doesn't understand the function and purpose of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and the power that Congress has to amend the Constitution. David Harsony says nothing threatens progressivism more than a court that adheres to the Constitution. Katie Pavlich points out that watching Democrats completely melt down when Republicans play by their rules is quite something. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says Democrats cannot use illegitimate as a synonym Uh, For we didn't get our way. Democrats keep demanding the president repeat that the election will be valid even if he dislikes the outcome. But they're flunking that test badly with Judge Barrett's nomination. Guy Benson points out this was wholly legitimate process if confirmed 
Um, it confirmed a worthy majority supported nominee. We have a new SCOTUS associate justice, the fifth woman to ever attain that title. But of course, that doesn't really resonate unless you happen to be a liberal woman. Um, you're not feminine or female enough if you happen to be a conservative woman. So we won't celebrate the fact that she is female. Theologian Dr. Albert Moeller made the case for four more years of Donald Trump. The president of the Southern Baptist Seminary noted that he didn't vote for Trump in 2016. He didn't vote for Hillary either. Uh, from Moeller's briefing, he says, in terms of presidential action, Donald Trump has been the most effective and consequential pro-life president of modern age. Furthermore, in both executive actions and court appointments, President Trump has gone far beyond what would be uh, would have been politically necessary to secure his base. He has staked his place in history and has defied the accomplishments the accommodationist temptation and has given pro-life Americans more than any other president. In April, I said in public that uh, what was implicit in my commentary and actions since January of 2017, I would vote for Donald Trump in 2020, and I already have. I sincerely hope that Donald Trump and not Joe Biden will be elected president of the United States on November 3rd. Now, this is in the midst of major theologians coming out publicly on both sides of this election, saying who believers should and should not support why they are supporting one or the other. So this has been a rather consequential election in terms of the unity in the body of Christ. And my hope is we can survive it regardless of the outcome based on much higher things than the outcome of a presidential election. Well, polls say uh, Rasmussen Rasmussen polls rather give Trump a lead nationally of the three polls landing the past few days. Rasmussen has Trump up one. The other two have Biden up seven. If accurate, they indicate a tightening of the race. Rasmussen had Biden up 12 a couple of weeks ago. Trump is getting help from Hispanics in Texas. Pennsylvania is particularly interesting following Biden's promise to kill the oil industry. Selena Zito points out that since 2016, voters in the um, heat countries have been rewarding Trump's performance by switching their votes a voter registration from Democrat to Republican in astounding numbers. In Washington County, the roles of Republican registrants grew by enough to overcome what had been a deficit of 13,000 in 2016. The county has since added 12,000 voters and Republican voters from the plurality for the first time since the 1930s. The whole western region of energy heat counties um, that also includes Beaver, uh, Westmoreland, Fayette, Green and Butler has shown a net Republican increase of 21 percent since 2016. From the New York Times, high quality polls of Pennsylvania conducted this month have put Mr. Biden up by any more than five to 13 points among likely voters. But they have also shown five percent to 10 percent of those voters declining to express support for either major nominee. A Trump comeback will probably depend on his winning over good share of those uh, undecideds while driving down Mr. Biden's support among demographics that have long since turned against the president, such as older voters and suburbanites, but that have um, not swung as heavily as Democrats. And again, that's uh, from the New York Times. Rather uh, interesting observation. Well, California is appealing a court ruling against Uber and Lyft, telling them they must classify all drivers as employees rather than drivers effectively killing the business and wiping out yet Uh, more business in the struggling state. And Supreme Court has shut down the Wisconsin Democrats from changing voting rules. They wanted votes received after Election Day to count. SCOTUS voting five to three. That's without Amy Coney Barrett said no. Riots in Philadelphia over police killing of a black man continues. And taking a look at this day in history, 
1787, the first of the Federalist Papers, a series of essays calling for the ratification of the United States uh, Constitution is published. 1954, U.S. Air Force Colonel Benjamin O. Davis Jr. is promoted to Brigadier General, the first black officer to achieve that rank in the U.S. Air Force. 1954, Walt Disney's first television program titled Disneyland after a yet-to-be-completed theme park premieres on ABC. It preceded the theme park. On this day in history, 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, a U-2 reconnaissance aircraft is shot down while flying over Cuba, killing the pilot, U.S. Air Force Major Rudolf Anderson, Jr. 1978, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin are named winners of the Nobel Peace Prize for their progress toward achieving a Middle East Accord. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, a gunman shoots and kills 11 congregants and wounds six others at a Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue in the deadliest attack on Jews in U.S. history. Authorities would say the suspect, Robert Bowers, raged against Jews during and after the rampage. I should mention that in Oregon, all ballots must arrive by mail to the appropriate office or drop box by 8 p.m. on November the 3rd. In Washington, ballots just need to be postmarked by Election Day. But the last day to safely mail a ballot in Oregon is today. After uh, after today, all voters must return their ballots to an official drop site. In Oregon, ballots have to be received um, rather than simply postmarked. Now, call your county election office if you have not received your ballot yet. You can find more information about that and how to replace a ballot uh, at your county elections office. The suggested day to mail in your ballots in Oregon used to be the Thursday before election, though officials have moved it to be a full week before election day with guidance from the U.S. Postal Service, given the fact that so many mail-in ballots are a factor this year across the country. While in Oregon, all mail-in ballots need to arrive by 8 p.m. on election day. In Washington, they just need to be postmarked by November the 3rd, although election officials suggest mailing them earlier to ensure voters do not miss the deadline and to um, ease strain on election offices. Well, like in Oregon, Washington voters have until 8 p.m. on the 3rd of November to return ballots to official drop sites. You can find a list of Clark County, Multnomah County, Washington County, Skamania County drop boxes um, at your county elections office. And you can find all other election office websites uh, as well under county elections. So check that out today, the last day that you can safely mail your ballot to ensure that it will arrive in a county elections office by election day, November 3rd. And can you believe we are simply seven days away from official election day? My guess is, and I think it's an informed guess, the process will take some time. Uh, In Washington, for example, your ballot has to be postmarked November 3rd, but it doesn't have to be received by November 3rd. One example in which you might see um, the count, the final count, following Election Day rather than ending on Election Day. So it will be protracted. Will it be challenged? That is the larger question. We will just have to, uh, to see. Well, there's something trending. There are more than 59 million Americans that have cast their ballots ahead of November 3rd. And what's trending? Can I change my vote? <laughs> well, what you need to know. As I mentioned, more than 59 million Americans have already cast their ballots ahead of Election Day, but some might be wondering if they can change that vote. We'll tell you more about that in our next segment, but we do need to take a quick break here in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
We're also going to talk about uh, whether or not there's election fraud and how to prepare for a contested election, a protracted outcome, which I think many suggest could, in fact, be the case. Both political parties are prepared to challenge the outcome. Uh, They'll just have to choose on what grounds and move forward. It may, in fact, be that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, settles the outcome. That's not uh, altogether clear. We hope it's not another um, election we saw back in, what was it, uh, 2000 Bush Gore. Uh, In any event, we'll uh, continue to talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I mentioned, more than 59 million Americans have already cast their ballots ahead of Election Day. But some might be wondering if they can change their vote. That's according to Google Trends. Now, Google searches of the phrase, can I change my vote, peaked on Tuesday morning at about 6 a.m. Eastern Time. One of the uh, sub-regions where the phrase began trending was in Delaware. The state Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden represented in the Senate for 36 years. Other sub-regions included battleground states like Maine, Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio, Michigan, North Carolina, Iowa, Wisconsin, Arizona, according to trend data. And while most states don't allow voters to change their early votes, there are some that do with restrictions. For example, in New York, if you have uh, submitted an absentee ballot but change your mind, you can show up at your polling place during early voting or on election day and cast a vote, in which case the absentee ballot is set aside and not counted according to the State Board of Elections. And that's not the case everywhere. In Michigan, voters who've sent in their ballot, uh, they can submit a written and signed request Uh, to their voting clerk by 5 p.m. on the 30th of October, and they can request to have the ballot nullified. Uh, Minnesota, uh, Minnesotans who've mailed in an absentee ballot have until the 20th of October to request a new ballot from their county or elections. And in New Hampshire, voters who submitted an absentee ballot can go to the polls on Election Day during the first hour they're open and vote in person um, or before their absentee ballot is processed. So it is possible in Wisconsin. If time allows, a voter can cancel their original absentee ballot, request a new one, but they have until the 29th, the legal deadline for requesting absentee ballots by mail. Well, as of Sunday, the nearly 60 million Americans who have voted early in the 2020 presidential election suggests a record turnout this year. In 2016, 47.2 million early votes were cast in the presidential election. That's according to the U.S. Elections Project Project. President Trump tweeted about the Google trend Tuesday morning and encouraged voters to go do it, claiming without evidence that the trend refers to changing it to him. While Trump suggests the Google trend started immediately after his debate with Biden on Thursday, data showed the search uh, didn't spike until Tuesday morning, about five days later. In any event, if you want to change your vote, check out your election officials. Well, Mark Harris was riding high on Election Day in 2018, the Republican candidate for North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. He'd beaten his Democratic opponent in a very close race. The next stop was the U.S. House of Representatives, or so it seemed. Harris had won by 905 votes, a margin of about 0.3 percent of all the ballots that were cast. Well, the state's Board of Elections refused to certify the results, though, when evidence surfaced of 
concerted fraudulent activities related to absentee by mail ballots, including illegal vote harvesting by a political consultant and his associates. Well, the board's investigation turned up so many cases of fraudulent activity, including forged signatures, widespread ballot harvesting, that a new election was ordered in the congressional race, as well as two local races. A new candidate, Dan Bishop, took Harris's place and went on to win the seat in the special election last year. Well, the Wake County Grand Jury, meanwhile, indicted the political consultant on charges of felony obstruction, a conspiracy to obstruct justice, possession of absentee ballots, and perjury. Well, not all cases of election fraud are this far-reaching, of course. Uh, many are quite small, involving a relative handful of votes, but they are not um, nearly as rare as many people would like to think. Well, the fact is election fraud is real, and as many of the examples as has been presented in the election fraud database show, they can change the outcome of an election. Now, the Heritage Foundation has put together said database, and it's really quite fascinating to read. Many in the media would rather look the other way, however, not acknowledging that the issue is an issue at all. My guess is if the election doesn't go the way they hope and believe it will, they might just gain a little bit more interest. Some try to dismiss or explain away evidence that doesn't fit the pre-approved uh, move-along-nothing-to-see-here narrative, and they insist that there are no vulnerabilities in our electoral process. Well, the reporting team from USA Today, PBS Frontline, and Columbia Journalism Investigations in the latest culprit uh, knew um, no fewer than 14 reporters contributed to a lengthy story that attempted to downplay the actions of the individuals who've been found guilty of various election offenses. Again, nothing to see here. Move along. One example, they attempt to diminish the culpability of the actions of uh, one couple who wrongly voted by absentee ballot from an address uh, and uh, town in which they no longer reside. Well, like many of the cases uh, in the database, the Blakes were originally charged with a felony for their actions, but ultimately entered a guilty plea and admission of guilt to reduce the charges so their voting rights would not be terminated within the entire state of Wyoming. Well, each and every one of the cases in that database represents the an instance in which a public official, usually a prosecutor, thought it serious enough to act upon it, and each and every one ended in a finding that the individual had engaged in wrongdoing in connection with an election or that the results of an election were sufficiently in question and had to be overturned. Also, the article implies the case of Gary and Lila Blake is a typical um, uh, entry into the database and ignores other more serious cases of absentee uh, balloting where elections have actually been overturned. Uh, the reporters assert that there's not a single example of absentee fraud that's affected the outcome of an election. Well, the USA Today and PBS story criticizes the inclusion in the database of Alabama's 2016 um, uh, it's, think it's a Wetumpka County Council's District 2 election, which was decided by three votes in favor of Percy Gill. It was overturned by a judge when at least eight absentee ballots were discovered in which the signatures had been forged or not notarized or witnessed as required by state law. Another case in the database from Kaufman County, Texas, involved an election for the city council that was overturned and a new election ordered by a Democrat judge due to vote harvesting and absentee ballot fraud. Well, I don't have time to go into all the details. You can go to the Heritage Foundation to look up some of these other cases. But my guess is... Depending on who wins and who loses this next election, these uh, sorts of cases will be thrust into the spotlight to make the case that, yes, voter fraud is real. It does happen, and um, there will be challenges in the court as a consequence. So it will be interesting to watch to see um, what happens 
next. I don't have time uh, today to get into how to prepare for a contested election, so I'm going to hold that over for another day because I think it's fascinating to consider what might happen if this election is contested. And I think a lot of people agree that it very likely will be because there are groups of people who are unwilling to accept the outcome of this election for various reasons. Uh, But I wanted to uh, move on to uh, the fact that progressives are pushing for a Warren Sanders potential cabinet positions in a Biden administration. If the Democratic presidential nominee wins the race for the White House, will either Senators Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren be trading the title of senator for secretary. One or both of these progressive champions uh, who battled the former vice president in the primaries but became supporters and surrogates for him in the general election could end up in his cabinet if he defeats President Trump in next week's election. Wow, next week's election, seven days away. Two sources close to Sanders' orbit confirmed that the populist senator from Vermont does have interest in serving as the Department of Labor secretary in a potential Biden cabinet. At the same time, there's a push in recent days by progressive groups for Warren, uh, who's long taken aim at Wall Street and the big banks, to be named Treasury Department Secretary in a Biden administration. While the former vice president remains focused on winning the election, his uh, transition teams, following longstanding tradition and preparing the staff for a new administration, uh, is considering her as Bernie Sanders as well. Well, following the combustible Democratic presidential primary battle, the uh, party's powerful left wing has kept the peace. They've remained unified behind Biden's bid to oust Trump from the White House. But a victory next week by Joe Biden and running mate Senator Kamala Harris, who is far much uh, far further to the left, would likely bring an end to the truce between the party's progressives and moderates. And hence, um, a cabinet member, a cabinet spot rather for uh, Bernie Sanders is also in the uh, uh, consideration. Progressive leaders say that they've learned their lesson from 12 years ago when they explained that a lack of emphasis by the left on the transition under President-elect Obama allowed people too closely aligned with corporate interests into key cabinet and other administrative positions. Uh, I think progressives in 2008, and this is a quote from uh, Mr. Hauser recollecting the earlier election, uh, focused solely on the election and did not pay much attention to the transition. He highlighted that progressive groups won't cede the field to corporate lobbyists this time around. Neither Sanders nor Harris would comment on that speculation. But a longtime progressive and labor organizer who advised Bernie Sanders during both his presidential bids says that the great thing about Bernie Sanders is he knows who he is. He knows what he wants, the path to getting a much better life for most Americans, that's the path Bernie wants to take. Well, Kurt Ehrenberg, the advisor, noted that uh, Sanders sees that he needs to be relevant throughout this process. He has to has been a good soldier, so to speak, for the Biden campaign, not making any waves, and then start lobbying Biden from day one after the election. If Bernie can uh, be inside that cabinet room and inside the administration, all the better. And that will ultimately be the goal. So keep your ears open for what kind of a cabinet Biden would likely select. Those names won't be mentioned now. But if he's elected, it's very likely that he will be pressured, uh, if not um, inclined to move that far to the left on his own to place these two and others in cabinet positions. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Just want to remind you, in the state of Oregon, today is the last day to safely mail your ballots in. Uh, Tuesday, October 27th. After that date, all voters must return their ballot to an official drop site. Now, what I, when I say safely, that means you can drop it in the mail, but unless it arrives on time by 8 o'clock p.m. to the... Um, 
elections office, you can't know for certain your county elections office has received it in time to be counted. Now, in Washington, ballots just need to be postmarked by election day. That's not the case in Oregon. In Oregon, all ballots must arrive by mail or drop box by 8 p.m. on November the 3rd, election day. Um, you can call your county election office if you haven't received your ballot yet. You can find out more information about uh, requesting a replacement ballot, where the drop-off locations are, and uh, so on. But the suggested day to mail-in ballots in Oregon used to be the Thursday before Election Day. Officials have moved that to be a full week before the election with guidance from the U.S. Postal Service that is swamped this year, having to manage most of the election. Not all, but most of it. And while in Oregon, all mail ballots need to arrive by 8 p.m. in Washington, Ballots just need to be postmarked uh, by November 3rd. And although election officials suggest mailing them earlier to ensure voters to do uh, rather do not miss the deadline and to ease strain on election offices, even in Washington, these are the guidelines. Well, like in Oregon, Washington voters have until 8 p.m. on the 3rd of November to return their ballots to an official drop site. You can find a list uh, uh, at your county election office uh, for those details. So today being the last day in Oregon to safely mail your ballots in Washington, you have until the 3rd to have it postmarked, but you have until 8 p.m. even then on November 3rd. Also, I wanted to uh, give a final reminder today, at least, for the virtual pastor appreciation events that we've been hosting here at KPDQ for pastors and ministry leaders throughout the month. Uh, it's really been kind of exciting. We're all disappointed that we weren't able to meet together for the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast, but I'm grateful that it has afforded us the opportunity to feature some of the uh, best preachers and teachers from around the country, some of the most popular and talented musicians from around the country who have come together for the sole purpose of bringing encouragement to area pastors. And so we want to encourage you to take full advantage of that resource. Uh, they are live and up on our website every Thursday morning. I believe it's around 7, 8 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. But if you register before the last of the series uh, this Thursday morning, uh, you can have access to all four previous uh, days in which we've had pastor appreciation messages and events. So go to kpdq.com. The uh, keyword is pastor. And there you can uh, register and be a part of this uh, this great opportunity that we have to say thank you. We appreciate you. We don't see ourselves as being a replacement for the church. We recognize that God has called you to shepherd the flock. You are the leaders uh, here in our communities, and we want to honor you and to say thank you. So again, you can register at kpdq.com. The keyword is pastor. And our final Thursday is coming up obviously this Thursday. We would love for you to, to join the event and also avail yourself of the previous four weeks if you haven't already done so. Well, you should know that the IRS on Monday released the updated tax brackets for the 2021 filing season. Yes, taxes, which have been uh, modified to reflect inflation. Taxpayers uh, fall into one of seven brackets, 10%, 12%, 22, 24, 32 35 or 37%. While those rates will remain unchanged in 2021, the tax brackets have been indexed to keep pace with cost of living adjustments. Now, these rates are in effect for 2021. They're going to be used to prepare your taxes, tax returns in 2022. If you can um, find a tax bracket, uh, you can kind of estimate just what your um, 
what your rate will be. The IRS has also increased the standard deduction. That's a flat dollar amount that reduces the amount of your income uh, that's subject to taxes for 2021 as well. For individual and married couples filing separately, the deduction rose to $12,550. That's up from $150. Uh, dollars from this year or up by $150. For married couples filing jointly, the deduction jumped $25,100. That's an increase of $300 or twice what the individual would be. So heads of household will also see an increase in their standard deduction next year from um, it's up uh, $150 or I should say $18,000 up $150 from this year. So those uh, announcements and decisions have been made. You can check that out with the IRS. All right. We are out of time. I want to thank James Blind for uh, producing this afternoon, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. We also appreciate your making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you have a great evening, and you'll join us back here again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.